said, do all the good that you can, by all the means that you can, in all the ways that you can, in all the places that you can, in all the times that you can, to all the people that you can, as long as you ever can. Well, it is great to be together again on Friday. Uh, great to see you all. Uh, we really appreciate that you make time every week to lay aside, to gather as the church. And uh, it's just great, great, great uh, to be together. Last Friday was Roman's birthday. Thanks to everybody that gave him sweets and chocolates and crisps and cookies and, and stuff. That was fun for us in the middle of the afternoon uh, when that all wore off. But um, yeah, thanks for that. We, we really appreciate that people take the time to say happy birthday to him. He was running around with a massive badge on. I think he was looking for your happy birthdays. But uh, it's a really nice, it's really nice as a parent when somebody's loving your kids and being nice to your kids. So thank you very much. We ended up going out for dinner last week, and um, how many people like a buffet dinner? Oh, we're on this. We're on. Yeah, okay, we're on this side again. Oh, what? We're not talking about the beloved friend's character Phoebe buffet. I'm talking about a buffet. We might talk about this later. <laughs> just to make sure I'm saying it right. But I'm too far into it now, so I'm going to carry on. How many people like a buffet dinner where there's lots of food laid out and you can just kind of choose what you want? Yep. <laughs> yeah, obviously do. And uh, <laughs> I don't know about you, but every time I go to a buffet dinner, you pick up your plate and you walk around a bit and you think, well, oh, that's good. That's good. And that's good. That's salmon, steak, or the high-value stuff. I'm going to get my money's worth out of this buffet dinner. Uh, and then you just walk around a couple of times and do what? You just look. You don't really get anything. You just kind of walk around with your plate thinking, this is great. And then five or ten minutes later, you're still walking around with your plate. You've not chosen anything. Your kids are finished with their chips and hummus and all that stuff, and you've still got an empty plate. And there comes a point at a buffet dinner where you do have to make a choice. You've got to actually do something, have a bit of conviction, uh, and make a decision. And again, as we were talking about, if you're at a buffet dinner, a little insider's tip, choose the high-value stuff. Get your money's worth out of what you've paid for dinner. Get the salmon, get the steak. Uh, don't get chips, <laughs> fries, uh, and hummus. But uh, you do, there comes a point where you've got to make a decision, have a bit of conviction, dilly-dallying around, it's just not going to do it. You've got to make something happen for yourself. Now, obviously, walking around a buffet dinner is not that important, is it? Big picture. Uh, but it's very much like uh, what Paul is talking about in Second Corinthians 5, as Brenda just read for us. Uh, maybe you don't see the connection of the, uh, right now, dilly-dallying around a buffet uh, Paul's talking about in Second Corinthians. But trust me, it's Pretty much exactly the same. And <laughs> today then in this passage, you, you'll see, you'll see. We're going to see why we need to stop dilly-dallying around and actually make a decision and do some stuff. You know, walking around with your empty plate for a, a while, uh, feasting with your eyes is great, but you do have to actually make a decision, grab that spoon uh, and choose something. Second uh, Corinthians, big picture. We've been here for about nine weeks now. We're a few chapters in and Paul is still correcting some of the misunderstandings, kind of uh, rewiring some of the thinking that was playing itself out in Corinth. He's kind of addressing some of these accusations against himself still. Uh, and in a couple of chapters time, he's going to make a turn and get really, really practical before he closes this letter. 
uh, by talking about the future. And last week, if you weren't with us, he spent a lot of time contrasting how we frame things now, the trials and the tribulations that we go through, uh, with what we know as believers in Jesus is coming for us in the future. He talks about this, uh, our light affliction versus the exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Uh, so as we move through this passage, chapter 5, verses 1 to 10, uh, he's going to write more about this contrast, and then he's, we are going to see why it's really, really important that we actually live with a bit of conviction, that we make some decisions and actually do uh, some stuff, not just plan it, think it, actually do some stuff. And it's such a great, it's such a great passage. There are often, you come to passages in the Bible where it teaches really well, like you can explain it and talk about a language and it's really great for teaching. And then there are other passages that are great for preaching. Uh, and I think Second Corinthians 5, 1 to 10 is a little bit of both. There's some really great stuff for us to get our teeth into would also leave with feeling really uplifted. So it's a great, 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 great passage. So, earthly and eternal, uh, living with conviction. Let's read again verses 1 to 4 of 2 Corinthians 5. Paul writes, For we know that if our earthly house, the tent we live in, is dismantled, we have a building from God, a house not built by human hands that is eternal in the heavens. For in this earthly house we groan, because we desire to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed, after we've put on our heavenly house, we will not be found naked. For we groan while we are in this tent, since we are weighed down. Because we do not want to be unclothed, but clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Uh, so as you'd expect with this big long letter, he's carrying on seamlessly from last week. And he says, if our earthly body, the, the, the tent that we live in, is broken, and he, uh, we talked about last week some of the things that Paul experienced, and he rattled this list of, of trials and tribulations off um, that were very real to him. It wasn't a, a mental exercise in, in tribulation and suffering. He says, look, if things get really bad and the earthly body, the tent that we live in is broken, we've got a building from God. He's talking about a spiritual structure, an eternal and permanent resurrected body. Uh, I think Jesus kind of Easter Sunday onwards. And he says it's a house not built by human hands. And he just means that it's not formed, made in the same way as the bodies that we all inhabit now. And Paul knew, just as Jesus did, that the earthly body that we're all in now, the here and now, is just a preview of the permanent and much more glorious building from God. And we see this kind of, this idea, this truth in scripture quite a few times. We think about how God's spirit rested on people individually for certain jobs, tasks, and times. And then we moved to a tabernacle, this movable temple tent that was good. And then we moved to a temple that was even better. And then came Jesus, which was even better. And Paul here uses the same kind of language that John does in John 1.14 when he says that Jesus uh, took on flesh and lived among us. Uh, very, very, very literally, John is saying Jesus took on flesh and pitched a tent among us. Uh, so Paul is telling the Corinthians and us by extension that, that this is all temporary. The bodies that we have, the problems that we're working through is all very temporary. It's a preview of something much, much better. And so again, how we frame our troubles, how we look at who we are now and how we're working through stuff now helps us to move through them, helps us to process them uh, properly. 
as we talked about last week. And again, he's shifting that focus from all that we can see now, the bodies that we've got now, the, the, the people that we're with now, the problems that we're experiencing now, to that which is going to come in the future and be even better. And he continues and he says that the opposition that he faced, just like last week, rather than making him want to quit and get bitter about stuff, makes him yearn all the more to keep on going and get better. He says, if in this earthly house we groan, because we desire to put on our heavenly dwelling, we know that what is coming is better, if indeed, after we've put on our heavenly house, we'll not be found naked. Verse 3 there makes it really clear to us, he's, he expects this to be read by and heard by believers. You know what's coming is going to be even better than what you've got now, if, when this goes, there is something better, if. We'll get, we'll get to the if. Uh, and let's, again, let's be really clear. He doesn't want to escape his body. He just doesn't want to die and check out and just disappear. And like, I'm done. I've had enough. Uh, but again, there in verse 3, he wants to keep on going through trials and tribulations towards what he knew uh, was coming next. And that contrasts so sharply for him with how things uh, were then. And he's really honest. And he's really open. We said, we've said a couple of times that Second Corinthians is his most open and, and personal letter. Uh, and he says, we groan while we are in this tent. And then a, l- a little bit further down, he says, we're, you know, we groan, it's difficult since we're weighed down. And I think sometimes we're a little bit afraid to voice this truth. We're groan while we're in this tent. Life is difficult we said last week on this side, sometimes we're a bit afraid to admit that we are weighed down with stuff because we're constantly hearing and and reading and being told and taught that you're made in God's image. That's where you find your identity. That's where you find your purpose. That's where you find your value. Your life has inherent and intrinsic value. Just being alive makes you really special and you're made in the image of God. We can feel a bit afraid to admit that life can be really difficult. We can feel like, well, maybe God's made me and all I see, so how can I speak against that? And so when people ask how we're doing, like, yeah, I'm fine. We, it's best, especially here. We come in, how you doing? We've got the Friday face. Oh, yeah, I'm good. And you, you know, <laughs> and the other person knows that something's up. Life is difficult. You're groaning. You feel weighed down. We can be, feel a bit Scared to, to admit that. Paul's not scared to admit that. The contrast of what is coming in the future does make us think, this is really difficult. I cannot wait for that. Uh, and I read this week, you know, we're not stoics. It's all right to admit when things are difficult. It's all right to say that you're, you're groaning, that life's getting you down a bit. We feel the burden and we groan, not because we're cowards and we just want to escape our burden, but because we want to put on the heavenly life. So because of how great we know things are going to be, that does reflect on the here and the now, that like, oh, this is really difficult. And it's all right to admit that. All right? Amen? It's all right to admit if life's getting you down, because in a community like this, there's somebody who's been through the same thing, who wants to pray with you, wants to walk with you through it, and 
we're, we're told multiple times in multiple ways, bear one another's burdens, come alongside one another, walk with one another through uh, the difficult things. But the first step is we've, we've got to say, we're groaning a bit. Life's getting me down a bit. We're weighed down with this, this, and this, and this. And so really simply, Paul is so convinced that what is coming is so good, it does show here and now to be difficult, but he's also so convinced that he's on the right path. Uh, and so no matter how difficult the circumstances around him or how, how weighed down he felt, he was going to keep going with such strong conviction that he can say, we don't want to be unclothed. Like life is difficult now, but I'm not looking for death. I'm not looking for an easy way out. I don't want to be unclothed. I do want to be clothed. I'm going to continue living like this for the Lord so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. I'm so convinced and convicted that I'm on the right path here that I'm going to keep going, even if things around me are really difficult, because I know that one day what is mortal is going to be swallowed up by life. He's definitely, definitely, definitely moving forward with a lot of conviction and confidence. And the confidence that he has and the confidence that we can have and we should have for the future, he now explains uh, in verses 5 to 10. So we'll read that together. He says, Now the one who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave us the Spirit as a down payment. Therefore, we are always full of courage, and we know that as long as we are alive here on earth, we are absent from the Lord. For we live by faith, not by sight. Thus, we are full of courage and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So then, whether we are alive or away, we make it our ambition to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be paid back according to what he has done while in the body, whether good or evil. And I said that this is a passage that teaches really well and preaches really well, and it's really 5 to 10. It's so rich. Uh, we could talk about this for a long, 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 long time. Uh, but we won't. We'll try and fit it on this. But if you do want to talk about this, please do let me know. It's such a it's a such a great passage. So, how do we know that our glorious future in a glorified body, you think Jesus after Easter Sunday, is guaranteed for you and for me? Where do we get this confidence from? Paul's answer is that God has made a divine down payment against that future reality. And there, in verse five, he says, "The one who's prepared us for this." The, 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 the eternal reality of this glorious body is God. He's thrown back to chapter 4, 17 and 18. He's given us the Holy Spirit as a down payment, a pledge, a first installment, uh, maybe your Bible says. And then he says, as a result of that, he says it twice in a couple of verses, we're full of courage to continue through the difficulties that are around us. Let's not lose sight of why he's saying this. It's not some uh, wishy-washy motivational speech. He is in the middle of a difficult time, and this is how he's, he's going to uh, progress through it. And then three times, he's just so brilliant with his words. God spoke through Paul in such wonderful, beautiful ways in this passage. And the first, we read of there, is a down payment when you read about that, you think about a mortgage, you think about getting a car loan, think about something really boring, but you understand what it means. Do we understand what a down payment is? Yeah, we do, yeah. So we're going to pay a, a sum of money for something, and then we have to pay some more. 
Uh, and he chose this word that means it's a partial payment that guarantees uh, future payments. And if somebody in this place and at this time, uh, you were on the receiving end of this guarantee, uh, and the, the other person didn't come through with the rest, you had a legal claim. You could take them to court and demand that they gave you the rest because they've given you this down payment. It's more than a promise. It's more than, here's my word. I'll, 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 I'm good for it. This is a legal binding thing. And the word that he chose, I'm looking for confirmation here, Constantinos, that this word is still used in modern day Greek. Paul wrote this in Greek to a bunch of Greek speaking, Greek reading Christians. And this word is still used. Yeah? I'm really glad you're here now. So I just want to, just want to check before I <laughs> carry on. How would you English this word? Okay, so it's a yes. Oh, that's good. So we're on that. Oh, good. I'm looking at the right kind of sources <laughs> during the week. It is. You look up this word online, like I did, and it, to, to check. People are saying it's still used in modern day Greek. I'm going to check that before I say that, and it is, it's used of a, an engagement ring. Looked it up online, and the, this, uh, this Greek word is used today of an engagement ring. If you give somebody an engagement ring properly, it means you're going to follow through on that promise, doesn't it? You shouldn't, shouldn't give people engagement rings lightly. That's not something, looking over here at like the Saturday morning, like you don't give engagement rings lightly. Like, that's a super serious commitment. It means you're going to follow through. I'm looking over here Saturday morning. Like, it's a super serious that you don't give engagement rings lightly. Somebody gives you an engagement ring, it means they are going to marry you. Look at the ladies. Somebody gives it to you, you follow that up. <laughs> it, like uh, Constantino said, it is a promise. And when a promise comes from God, they're all yes. That He doesn't make promises lightly. Uh, <laughs> it's a sure and secure promise of more to come. And this is where Paul gets his confidence from to continue through difficult times because he knows God has given us the Spirit now as a down payment, a promise that how good it is to have the Spirit in your life now is going to be even better in the future. There's going to be more to come. It's going to be better in the future. And so we read there in verse 8, thus, because of this, we're full of courage, and we would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. And he says that when he's writing to the Philippians as well. Look, I really want to go there. I know what's coming. It's going to be great. But for your sakes, for the people around me, no, we'll stay for a while. I've still got some stuff uh, to do. And then he comes back full circle to this perseverance to continue despite what's going on around him. He's been dealing with this for a few chapters. Uh, and it's in verses 9 and 10 that we kind of, kind of begin to transition from teaching and learning to leaving, feeling uplifted with, with some divine direction. So we'll read again verses 9 and 10 together. Uh, Paul writes, so then, uh, whether we are alive or away, we make it our ambition to please him, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be paid back according to what is done while in the body, whether good or bad. And so he says there in verse 9, whether we are at home with the Lord or still here in the temporary body and away from 
the personal presence of God. We make it our ambition, he says, to please or be pleasing uh, to God. And this is kind of the second really, really clever um, kind of word picture uh, that he is uh, giving. The Corinthians would have understood this really, really quickly um, as teaching them a truth uh, about Paul's purpose and, and our purpose as believers, but also correcting what was going on in Corinth. Uh, so at the time, we, uh, we've kind of referenced that Corinth is in Greece, and people spoke Greek, they were Greek cultured, they read Greek. They were kind of under Roman rule, uh, administration. And this word that we read is ambition has a couple of different uses, those in, with a Roman brain and those with a Greek brain. And he uses this word so beautifully to teach and to encourage the Corinthians and to deal with the problems. Uh, that are going on in the church there. And so when it was used by a, a Roman thinking, a Roman cultured person, this word ambition, somebody was ambitious, it talks about uh, politicians uh, or busybodies. I'm not saying the two are always the same, but politicians, busybodies, who would mingle around the community, drumming people up for their own cause. I think this. Come join me on my quest. I, I think we need to change this. Join me in, in making these changes. Uh, so describe, to, to describe somebody in, in, in the Roman world as being ambitious was uh, usually quite a negative thing because they're busybodying around. And we think about the people in Corinth who are drumming up support against Paul. And he uses this word to such great effect that on the one hand, he's saying to his detractors, look, however you might be perceiving things, your ambition is to get me to move on, to discredit me to the church. He says, our ambition is to please him. And so those who knew they were doing that, Lord willing, would have been very quickly convicted of what they're doing because he's referenced it so many times. Uh, but for those not doing that, our ambition, what we're drumming up support for, what we're trying to get people on board with, uh, is what is referenced quite a few times, and he will again, is the spread of the good news, uh, the, the grace of God to draw more people in, all to the glory of God. And his point is that whether alive on earth, or standing before the Lord in eternity, he's going to seek a life of dedication. His ambition, the, his plan, his recruiting people for a cause is to share the good news with people, is to glorify God. And so, again, his point, whether here or away, he's going to seek a life of dedication. That's his ambition. Service and praise to his great God. And then by... Uh, writing this to the Corinthians and by us reading it by extension, that should be our ambition too. That's how we should be interacting with one another and those outside of the church. That's how what we really should be trying to bring people uh, into. It's not a, a, a personal ambition. I'm trying to think of another word. It's not a personal thing. It's not something I feel like we should be doing this and join me on my quest. It's uh, Paul saying our ambition uh, is, is, to, is to please God. 
is to, to do things that glorify God, to bring other people into the, the, the grace of God. So that's what we should be doing. And then wonderfully for us, he doesn't just leave it there um, at verse 9. He keeps on going. Uh, and he tells them and does why. And we've said this so many times that when somebody tells us to do something, it's so much easier to take it and to digest it and to put it into action when we know why. And there are a few very special people who can just be told what to do uh, and off they pop. Uh, most of us prefer, let's say, a why. Can you do this? Because. Can you help me with this? Because. Uh, and so, wonderfully for us, he doesn't stop after saying, our ambition is to please God. That's what you should be doing. He says in verse 10, for, because. We should be pleasing God because. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be paid back according to what he has done while in the body, whether good or evil. I think there's, a lot, there's so much misunderstanding about this. Uh, standing before the judgment seat of Christ. It, uh, on first glance, it doesn't seem like a wonderfully positive place to be, does it? Before a judgment seat. I mean, or maybe, I don't know. Some people are kind of smiling and nodding. and Maybe you think it's a great thing. Maybe you already know what it means. Uh, but on first glance, standing before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one can be paid back for what you've been doing, uh, doesn't sound like uh, a wonderfully positive thing. But again, to the people who read this and heard this initially, this would have made so much sense. But I think we can hear this. How on earth am I going to stand before God, before a judgment seat? Uh, and we can get really, uh, we can get really worried about this. Uh, and again, we're thinking Romans and the, the law and uh, very legal things. They would use this word. This is where uh, Pontius Pilate sat on the judgment seat and decided what was going to happen to Jesus that we'll talk about in a couple of weeks. But again, Paul is, is choosing to use and he has been inspired to use these words that his people would have understood straight away. Uh, and again, he's writing to a, a church in Greece uh, who read Greek, who thought in Greek, let's say. They hear this word, they read this word, and they think of this place in the top picture. That's a picture of Corinth. And there's a plaque on the wall that says this was the, the, the judgment seat uh, in town. Um, if we do make it to Athens at the end of this year, it's not, Corinth is not that far uh, from Athens. So we'd love to also go. So the Corinthians have read this and they're thinking of an athletic contest. Think about the, the middle picture there. Uh, they'd be thinking like... The Olympics, they're thinking about this athletic context where at the end of the race, as you can see there in the little yellow box, there is somebody of authority waiting at the end for you. When you get to the end of the race, there is somebody who's in charge of everything sitting there waiting for you. Uh, and they would judge, they would decide who came first, who came second, who came third. And who's just kind of making up the numbers at the back. And if you're first, second, third, in, a, in any kind of athletic endeavor, you usually receive 
uh, what? Oh my gosh, nobody grew up playing sports? If you win something, what do you get? Trophy, a medal, parental love. Wowzers. I mean, yeah. I mean, parent, like, surely parental love is modeled after God's love, which is unconditional. Winners or losers <laughs> are loved. Extra showers of parental love. I'm so proud of you, you little winner. Maybe. <laughs> but if you, if you win something, if you come first, second, or third, you usually get a prize, a crown, uh, a wreath, uh, a trophy, as you said. And that's what's happening. In the third picture, there is somebody sitting on this seat, and there's a guy being carried in on the shoulders of others, and he's been brought to the judgment seat to receive... A trophy, a wreath, honor for what he has done in the race. Uh, and so the Corinthians, that's how they would have heard, that's how what they would have thought about when they read about the judgment seat of Christ. And if you, if you leave with just one thing today, please let it be this. This, how, this, is, this must be how we think about the judgment seat of Christ as a Christian, as a believer. It isn't a place of dread or worry, or anxiety, or condemnation, where you live your life as diligently as you can, and then you get there, and you find out that it just wasn't enough. That's not what the judgment seat of Christ is about, because Scripture teaches very, very clearly that for believers in Jesus, God's justice has already been fully and forever satisfied at the cross with regards to our sins. Amen? So we don't need to fear that. Now, we should look forward to this. We stand before God to receive rewards for the good done in his name. We read, so that each one may be paid back. Maybe your Bible says, so that each one may be rewarded for what we've been doing down here. And so the, the big point that Paul is making and that we hope that we leave with is that what we're doing here and now, day by day, matters. It is important how we live our lives, why we live like that. What we do here and now matters, and it matters eternally. Paul was not going to be pushed off course by his detractors, by trials and tribulations. And for you and for me, we've got to be continuing in our Christian lives with some conviction. It's not good enough for us to just dilly-dally around maybe this or maybe that or maybe I should do that. I'm not sure. Maybe I'll do that instead. It's, we need to be sure of what we're doing because we are sure of where we're going. And so what we do matters and it matters it, eternally. And again, let's be really clear. We're not, we're not doing good. We're not working to get ourselves there. Um, to make sure that we stand before Jesus and his judgment seat and not the judgment of Revelation 20. Uh, the work of the cross, the empty tomb, your faith in Jesus, the grace of God alone is what puts us there, ready to receive rewards, prizes, uh, love from the Lord. But it, 
it is our task in the here and the now, the contest that we're in, is to, to live day by day, every day, a thoroughly God-honoring, Jesus-proclaiming, Spirit-filled life. So that, as Paul wrote in chapter 4, verse 15, the grace that is including more and more people may cause thanksgiving to increase to the glory of God. And so really, really simply, and very, very practically, how do we leave today and, and, and do this? How do we leave today and, and live a life that, that pleases God? How do we do uh, good things? How, what, what do we need to be thinking about to do that? We know what we're doing. We know why we should be doing it. How do we do it? And I love how uh, John Wesley phrased it. He said, do all the good that you can, by all the means that you can, in all the ways that you can, in all the places that you can, in all the times that you can, to all the people that you can, as long as you ever can. And so in any and all situations and circumstances that we find ourselves in during the week, we're thinking, what can I do here to make it better? What can I add to this? Because of my conviction that I have a glorious future ahead of me, because of my faith in the risen Jesus. What am I going to do here and now to make life better for those around me? And for Paul, uh, it, was, it was teaching and preaching the gospel, even if there was resistance uh, to that. For you and for me, it might be really different. You might feel called, you might be led to, to do uh, such a, vast and varied amount of things. You might be called, like Paul, to teach and preach the gospel in places that are quite resistant to it. You might be, feel called, led to raise up the next generation of believers. You might uh, feel led to lead God's people into worship, to build friendships and relationships with those who don't know Jesus. But as John Wesley said there, for all of us, it's all the good that we can do, by all the means that we can do, in all the ways that we can do, to all the people that we can do, for as long as we can do it. And so whatever that call is on our individual lives, what we do and how we do it matters. It matters eternally because, as we read there, we will. We will 100% without a shadow of a doubt, stand before God, and as we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, see what kind of work we've done. And the good, as we've just read there, will be rewarded, you know, well done, good and faithful servant. There's a bit of that parental love, being told well done, good and faithful servant. Uh, and Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3 that the other stuff is just, it's just forgotten, burned up, like you've never done it, uh, which focuses us all the more onto people, places, living our lives in a way that is going to matter eternally because the rest is just going to be forgotten. And what we do, again, what we do matters and it matters eternally. I think it matters so much more than most of us ever consciously think about as we're living our lives day by day. And again, I mean, you look around, you look around on a Friday that, I look around from here, seeing everybody at the same time, and there's just, oh, I see so much potential for good. Now, I, I don't know what every individual person uh, is doing, how, what good they're doing, 
uh, how they're living a life uh, that pleases God. But you look around and you see so much potential, so many vessels to be used of God, so much potential for good in the church, but also outside uh, the church. There's so much opportunity for us to uh, live out this life-changing message uh, in this wonderful place that we're all in together now. Uh, whether that's you're here for another six months, whether you're here for a year, whether you just plan to be here forever and ever and ever, it's it's not a job for one or two of us. It's for everybody that has called on the name of the Lord to be saved. Uh, and so if you don't know how you can be doing some good here in the church, in the community, uh, let's, uh, let's, let's talk afterwards. But as Paul writes there, whether we're alive or away, we make it our ambition to please him. For we, we must all appear for the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be paid back according to what he has done well in the body, whether good or evil. So if you don't know how to be doing that, please do talk to one of us afterwards. Uh, but for now, let's stand and let's pray.